Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business leaders to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. Uh, today we're going to talk about the future of investment bank. Investment banks, no doubt, serve a very important function in finance in our world today. Uh, they help raise capital for companies uh, through equity or debt offerings, like what we talk about IPOs all the time. Uh, investment banks provide corporate finance advice on mergers and acquisitions, restructuring. Uh, they facilitate transactions and provide capital to our economy. So it's a very important component of finance. Uh, but what will the future be for investment bank? Uh, will the sector be disrupted by technological innovations? So w- our guest today is uh, Mr. Mel Mummerd. He was the head of European investment banking at Middle Market Investment Bank, Raymond James, and a highly respected banker uh, with decades of experience. So we're going to have a uh, talk about this topic. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. Mummerd. Thank you, Tiger. Good to be here. Awesome. So uh, would you mind first giving us a quick intro to your background uh, and how you got into investment banking? Yeah, but it's kind of like a, a fork in the road of life. I started as an uh, engineer at, at IBM, switched over to marketing, uh, did an MBA. When I got out, a good portion of my classmates went right into investment banking, some into strategy consultant. Um, at the time, I wanted to try to run the race at a large corporation uh, and did that for about five years at IBM. But after uh, that time, I began to get a little bit uh, um, uh, bored with the large corporation. Uh, IBM in the 80s was also a very big uh, dinosaur trying to pivot, but very, very slowly to, uh, to new fields, software, uh, uh, workstations, uh, and, and uh, communications. And uh, I sat at a round table with the CEO at the time, John Akers, and he said, well, at IBM, we believe in evolution, not revolution. And that was the point at which I knew this was not going to work um, because the world was in the middle of a revolution uh, and IBM was not responding. Uh, obviously, a few years later, Lou Gerstner got there and, and the climate changed. Uh, and at that time, uh, in 1987, the, the markets were booming, uh, a lot of takeovers financed by uh, junk bonds. Um, uh, Drexel Burnham is a big investment bank, a big player at the time. Two years later, they uh, blew up. Um, and uh, one of the key uh, founders uh, involved in the junk bond industry, Mike Milliken, ended up in jail. Um, and I say that just because it, it says how uh, risky and, and how fragile the investment banking business can be, depending on your, uh, your ability to assess and, and take on risk. So at the time, I thought investment banking is exciting. Uh, didn't want to work in New York or, or London. I had two foreign languages, French and German, so I went off uh, to Europe, uh, interviewed, uh, and um, just decided to get involved with a small middle market investment bank based in Munich. Um, at that time in Germany, there was only one U.S. investment bank. Solomon Brothers had a team about 12 or 14. Otherwise, the Deutsche Bank and the big German banks, Dresdner, Commerzbank, were pretty much the big players in investment banking. So, again, it was something I thought in my late 20s, single, uh, do it for a couple of years, and then maybe come back to New York or go to London or who knows what I was thinking in my late 20s. But um, it ended up becoming a career and um, basically spent the last 30 years uh, based in Germany doing cross-border uh, M&A. Got you. Uh, so wh- since the topic of today is uh, the future of investment banking, why don't we just get your thesis out of the way and, and give our listener a quick overview. So, so what's your thesis on the future of investment banking? Uh, are you more viewing it from a technological perspective or are you t- going to be talking about industry trends today with us? 
Well, investment banking has always been a very dynamic industry, right? Because we're talking about flows of capital, uh, the lifeblood of corporations. So it plays a very important role in industrial development. Uh, it will always be impacted by regulation. Uh, as early as the 19th century, the regulation around corporations, around what is antitrust, uh, around collusion. Um, in the early 20th century, of course, uh, you know, managing the money supply through a Federal Reserve. Glass-Steagall Act of 1933 in the U.S. certainly had a big impact in splitting up uh, big organizations like the House of Morgan into an investment bank and a commercial bank. Uh, again, that's repealed in 1999. Um, so there will be a constant impact of regulation, and um, uh, that's not going to change. And the rules of the game will always be uh, important and, uh, and monitoring that the uh, playing field is, is level. In addition to regula regulation, technology is an obvious uh, impact. Um, that's also historically something that's been important, right, because investment banking is core is the flow of information, the flow of accurate information to reach uh, financing or, or uh, company decisions. And whether it was the telegraph or the telephone or uh, the uh, computer revolution and the Internet, um, technology will always have an impact on it. Uh, that will continue going forward. We can talk about some of the areas of technology that will change it. Um, in addition, we're living in a much more global world. I think uh, the ability to have a global footprint is increasingly important, uh, whether you're in a small niche or whether you're a big uh, global institution because money moves now at the click of a mouse uh, and money in huge amounts is available for, uh, for investing where, where it's needed or where there's opportunity. And finally, I think there's an increasing trend towards specialization. Um, the days of being sort of a universal bank and being one-stop shop for every need of a client, I think, are over. Clients increasingly want specialists in the niches or in the types of products and services that they need, whether that's asset management or M&A or trading uh, or equity research, uh, et cetera. So I think all these trends uh, are affecting investment banking going forward. Uh, why don't we start with tech? Because you mentioned how uh, investment banking is a very dynamic industry. It's all about the flow of information, and tech will really have an impact on that. Uh, do you do you see automation or any other tech innovation, for that matter, disrupt the, the industry? How exactly are we going to see tech playing a, a role in, in the disruption process? Right. Well, let's start with the, the big three of, of tech in the 21st century. One is cloud computing, which means we have massive ability to process information and gain access to information and share information. Um, secondly is mobility. People want access to information immediately and wherever they are. Um, and thirdly is big data, analytic tools that will allow you to process information, to use artificial intelligence, et cetera, to identify uh, patterns, to create algorithms, to mimic uh, or optimize investments or to mimic even human behavior uh, in providing advice. So I think those are changing the paradigm of how we work. Certainly in the M&A field, what we've seen is, you know, entry-level jobs that used to be very much or that are very much research-related or I call it number crunching, uh, many of these uh, skills which uh, have become more specialized, so the entry-level job in an investment bank is, is less of a generalist and much more of a specialist in terms of the tasks that, that are given to them in the first year or two. I think many of these skills can be automated away in terms of preparing information memorandum about companies, and researching potential investors. Um, the power of the internet and, and cloud computing, big data, means that you can access this information and 
uh, collate it and put it into presentations a lot more quickly uh, using technology. Now we're not there yet. Um, like many areas of innovation, people resist change um, uh, because there is always a human factor that can't be replaced. Uh, but I think that technology will, will change that. AI is already beginning to change the asset management business as uh, people, particularly the millennial generation, are more interested in um, identifying uh, opportunities to make money or to manage their money on their phone. They're much more comfortable with, with cryptocurrencies. They're much more comfortable with, with mobile applications, with, uh, with just paying online rather than using cash. And I think that's a major disruptor, certainly, for the entire money management industry. Uh, you mentioned how at the junior level, a, a lot of the banking work is more re research-related and crunchy numbers, and those could eventually be automated away by, by AI or big data. Or What about at the senior level? I mean, a lot of people say banking is a, is a relationship business. You spend decades building relationships with the right buyers and sellers. Uh, do you see that as something that will never go away in, in, in a way? Well, I think this, the, the senior level investment banking will remain a very important function, but not because of the networks, because frankly, you can use uh, computers to uh, uh, store and identify a network of investors, a network of potential relationships, um, which used to be in the Rolodex or you know the, the, the computers or smartphone of, of managing directors. But I think where their added value is, in, is more the human element. Um, and building trust with clients in those client relationships. Um, and that's very hard to replace. Uh, some of the s tools that a successful uh, managing director has to, has to use is one, social intelligence schools, uh, uh, skills, uh, you know, empathy, understanding the how and why people are reacting and uh, identifying their needs uh, because at the, at the core of any company or client is our stakeholders, shareholders, et cetera, but, but humans that have needs. And uh, from situation to situation and company to company, those will differ. So having those social skills are important. Negotiation skills remain important. Um, I've sat in many uh, negotiations across the table. We put the DCFs and all the financial analysis aside and basically looked in each other's eyes and says, how are we going to get this done? You know, what does your client want? What does my client want? And how do we bridge any gaps? And all the financial engineering went to the side, and essentially we got to a point where we tried to identify a way forward that really involved negotiating on smaller elements and um, you know, what, were, what were key uh, decision factors for, for getting a deal done versus the, let's say, the uh, technical aspects of it. So I think that's important. And at, at the end, I think, or finally, is being part of social skills is just persuasion. You know, the ability, if you have an idea, and it starts with cold calling on a client, the ability to sell that person, that potential client, on that idea. And persuasiveness is, again, uh, built on psychology. Looking someone his eyes and saying, are they excited? Are they glassed over and not interested? And where are the uh, pressure points that I can apply that will get this person excited about helping them on some strategic issue that they have. So in a way, will my generation be the last generation of kids going into the investment banking entry-level jobs? Because by the time in my 40s or 50s, does it mean we will just never see uh, entry-level investment banking work anymore? Well, there'll still be entry-level jobs. I think the nature of it will change. And then the question is, how do you prepare for that? So if, if today you say, well, my differentiator is I can really crunch numbers and I can do that for two years and work 24-7, and, and uh, uh, then all I could say is there will be computers and software 
uh, technology that can probably do that better. So now what are the skill set that you need at, at that entry level? And I think a lot of it is a much more holistic approach, uh, understanding the needs of your clients. Now you say that managing directors worry about that, but I think at the entry level, being able to ask the right questions, even guiding uh, technology or AI to look at different types of patterns, thinking outside the box to say, okay, look, you know, we've, we've got all the financial data and we've looked at the financial data across the industry, but the industry is being disrupted by some other players. So maybe there are peer companies that we should be looking at in terms of the equity story for this company that really don't fit into a narrowly defined version of what this uh, sector is all about. So, you know, technology is only as good as, as the, uh, your ability to give it um, uh, direction uh, through um, algorithms and to fine tune and optimize them. So I think while technical skills will remain important, there are cognitive skills that entry-level uh, uh, analysts uh, in all levels, whether it's asset management or investment banking, will increasingly need to have. And the source of that will be less and less finance uh, studies or computer studies. That They will still be important to have a base of that, but they will come from other fields too, whether it's politics, psychology, sociology, to have the broader view of uh, what is it you're trying to accomplish and how to use some of the technical tools to do the uh, let's say, the more limited uh, you know, financial analysis. It's very interesting because I remember talking to you last week and, and you were telling me how uh, if you look at someone like, like me whose resume is not a lot about, about finance, you do a lot of other activities, and you'd say, Tiger, I don't, you don't struck me as someone who would go into finance or, or you probably don't have a competitive edge in terms of the, the technical parts compared to a lot of other candidates. So, But, but you were also just saying how... It, in the future will require more holistic approach, asking the right questions. So uh, so if, if you're to look candidates right now, what do you think the industry is really looking for at entry level uh, right now? Do you, is there a sort of a top-down approach, of top-level thinking of we just want someone coming in, grind numbers for two years and dump them away? Or is it more like we actually want to find someone who could potentially be a career banker? Right. Well, if you look at the structure industry, you have to remember it's an extremely fragmented industry, right, across many, many different types of services. And certainly at a prestigious university like Princeton, you think first about all the big employers coming to visit, whether it's J.P. Morgan or Merrill or Goldman Sachs and others. So their needs at the analyst level are looking very different than the disruptors in this industry. So if I showed you a dozen fintech companies that are involved in, whether it's new forms of asset management or cryptocurrencies or um, look, looking at new models for hedge funds investing in different kind of stocks or arbitraging across different markets, you're going to look for or expect a very different skill set. And because the industry is very fragmented and while there's a certain con consolidation among the big players or has been, um, the big players like a J.P. Morgan are constantly facing niche players that are not only strong regionally, but in some cases globally in some small niche. And I think it's very difficult in, in many of these businesses, particularly where advice is important, money management comes to mind, M&A comes to mind. It's very difficult to maintain market share just by virtue of size. So if you look across the breadth of the investment banking um, uh, industry and the types of career opportunities, I think you'll find the more you move toward the disruptors, I'll call them, whether it's in payment systems or whether it's in robo-advisors or whether it's smaller M&A boutiques that are focused on very uh, small subsets of industries, that you find that's where they're going to look for much more 
uh, intellectual horsepower to think along with grinding the numbers because you'll be asked to be more of a generalist, more integrated into client teams than you would be at a very hierarchical, large organization such as some of the big banks I mentioned. Uh, do you have a view on whether uh, young people should go into big banks or, or small boutique advisory firms? Will the small, because you were mentioning how it would require more specialization with combined with the global footprint. So does that mean small advisory firms will be the future in, in a sense? Well, there always will be smaller advisory firms <coughs> and smaller investment banks. Um, if you look at just uh, cryptocurrencies, and the future use of those, I don't expect that the disruptors are going to be the big banks in that because they're protecting legacy business, just as blockchain technology and its implications for uh, for sales and trading uh, are not likely to be you know dominated by the larger banks because they're you know they have this legacy investment and infrastructure. Um, to do things the old way. So the disruptors will be much smaller, I think, agile, uh, technology-driven companies, even if they're fun funded by the Googles and the other the big uh, uh, technology disruptors out there. Um, so I think that for uh, for young people, you know, this is a time at your, of your life coming out of college where, A, whatever you, job you take is low risk, right? You could do it for two years um, and not impact your, the next 20, 30, 40 years of your, of your career. Uh, and number two, you need to, if you look at your, who you are and what your skill set, because skill set is, it's important that you look at what differentiates you from all the other applicants. You know, what differentiates you from the applicants to Goldman Sachs or to a mid-market bank or to an asset management or to a fintech company. Uh, and try to identify the best match with what differentiates you, because it's a very competitive job market, uh, and that potential employer. Um, the important thing is to think about, I think, coming out of college is the learning curve. And I think at smaller organizations, you're going to be on a, on a steeper learning curve. I guess another trend we're seeing is that more and more big corporations are now creating their own in-house M&A teams, right? We're seeing companies like Google, Salesforce, Intel. I mean, they can do, do their own sourcing and acquisition. They have people who, who build their own models. So in, in essence, they don't really need a, a sell-side investment bank advisor anymore. So do, do you think investment banks will play a less important role in, in large transactions in the future? Yeah, I think organizations have had in-house M&A for, for a number of decades, um, you know, going back to the 80s, GE and, and, and others, uh, but still used investment banks. I think the, the trend is that the, the use of investment banks really will, will focus on unique skills that they might have. Um, unique skill might be big bank has financing capability. So if you want to spin something out, they can help finance the deal uh, using their balance sheet. It may be a unique s skill in that, hey, we're Google, but we now want to get into certain areas of renewable energy. We don't have an M&A team that's focused on those areas of renewable energy. Who are the players? Or we have a geographic focus now to get into Southeast Asia. Who are the local investment banks that really know that market because we want to get involved in, 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 in purchase or acquire or partner with, with local technology-driven companies? So there will always be opportunities to provide a specialized service to these organizations. If anything, my experience is where there's an in-house M&A team, it makes the M&A process more professional, more structured. Um, when you're just reporting to the CEO, uh, Sometimes it's depending on his or her schedule um, and whims. Uh, the process can get get sidetracked, or 
um, change based on those those personal views. Once you're dealing with a professional M&A organization, they have an uh, you know an vested interest in making sure things move in a systematic uh, on a systematic timeline. So, I think of anything that's a good sign for investment bankers where there's in-house M&A. And by the way, in-house M&A organizations are also a nice place for young people to start and learn from the inside. What does it mean to really assess technology from a strategic standpoint? What a lot of um, young investment bankers have missed in that they've started, they studied finance or business and went right into investment banking is they've never really walked a factory floor. They've never really understood when you talk to a software developer, how do you commercialize that technology, right? It's a great technology, no one has it, but I've seen a lot of technologies that no one has that no one buys. So how do you create a sales organization to actually sell it? Because if you can't create revenues, the technology is essentially worthless. So I think getting those experiences makes you a much more valuable investment banker or advisor to CEOs and CFOs as you talk about meeting their strategic needs through different types of transactions. Uh, I just want to turn our focus on to a policy re- regulation for a little bit because you, uh, you were mentioning how uh, when you got into investment banking, it was like 1987, there was like the high yield uh, market sort of w- was booming. And then in 1999, you got the Glass-Stingle Act sort of being repealed. So does it mean that the world of finance or investment banking sort of come in cycles, right? I mean, we have the 2000 financial crisis and right after that, uh, it's sort of a 10-year period in the past years that like banks haven't really been in a comfortable position uh, whether it's Dodd Frank or, or, or other regulations, so do you think it's more of a cyclical thing, or do you think there's a, a, a trend, a pretty t- distinct trend that we're we're headed towards? Right. Well, you really, if you go back to the '80s, you, really two trends we're talking about. One is innovation, and one is uh, the cyclicality of it. So you remember, the '80s were an extremely creative time for investment banking. Uh, you know, junk bonds are, are being issued. Um, they later come to be called high yield bonds. Sounds a little nicer, but essentially, you know, what Mike Milliken f- figured out is that the risk of default at these very uh, low-rated, you know, triple B or lower-rated uh, bonds was really not that much higher than much higher-rated bonds. So it really wasn't a bigger risk, even though it was called high yield risk. So you could use those bonds to finance a lot of takeovers, and of course, the takeovers through a lot of leverage um, would allow you to get get access to corporate assets. So junk bonds. Secondly, derivatives. Right, people uh, in the '80s. I'm, I was selling IBM equipment to to Wall Street and was responsible for a number of the investment banks and uh, equipment sales to them. And you know, traders were getting uh, multi-window screens. Now you say multi-window sort of sounds Neanderthal, but back at that time, you had a different device on your desk with a different feed coming in with different information. Now, for the first time, you could put it all on one screen with different windows. And that today sounds like something that's pretty boring. You can swipe your phone and get all the windows you want, but that was a big innovation. You're connected to, in 86, you're connected to London Exchange, so now you begin to have off-hours training, trading. It's not just the time at which the, the New York Stock Exchange is, is open. Um, you begin to have mathematicians and operations research guys being hired because they are creating arbitrage in um, instruments. They're creating index funds. They're trying to find out mathematical ways um, to to game the market or essentially to get a, get a, a leg up on, on the market. So, you know, that was an innovation. And the third innovation in the 80s was securitization of assets, right? So you have mortgages that you're now packaging into a financial security and selling that 
um, to to investors, which means you can you can uh, do even more mortgages or even other types of asset bet, whether it's aircraft leasing or or, or or mortgages. So a lot of innovation, and that of course uh, uh, will continue uh, to affect the. Um, the financial service industry, independent of technology, just coming up with new creative instruments, ways to finance um, finance companies. The second thing you mentioned, cyclicality, and the fact is that the financial markets have always been cyclical. You know, there's always been some form of a boom and a bust cycle. Um, certainly, '87, the market took a big hit on Black Tuesday. Um, the internet bubble bursts 2000, um, 2007, 2008, financial crisis. Um, you know, you can go through, it's not like 20, 30, 40 year cycles. Now, maybe the recovery is, is a lot quicker, but the fact is that the investment bank industry is always on the, cur- on the curve of risk reward. And as the rewards go up, people start taking more risk. As the risk goes up, eventually you take the, you know, pay the price for that, for taking that risk. And, um, and that means the markets will then always correct. So, Anybody that points a straight line towards the heavens and say things always will go up, um, it's just not the case. And it, I don't think it'll ever be the case. It's a matter of dealing with those cycles and, um, and um, being careful what the bubbles are all about and how uh, much collateral damage there is around the, the bubbles, depending on what it is and, and the size of the, um, the, the, the bubble. Uh, what are your thoughts on Dodd-Frank, uh, those type of regulation in general for, for the banks? Well, regulation is, is good and regulation is necessary. And, you know, banks don't necessarily want to hear that, but I think they'll be the first to raise their hand and said, yeah, sure, we need to have rules that apply across all players and they need to be rules that ensure a level playing field and allow us to raise capital, bring capital to needy uh, investors or needy uh, corporations, companies, entrepreneurs. Uh, and um, I think that's, uh, you know, that's one element that, Uh, that all banks will agree that some form of regulation is necessary. Obviously, they disagree on, on what type it, uh, type it is. I think in practice, Dodd-Frank hasn't changed the industry as much as, um, as, much as maybe it was intended to after the, after the 2008 crisis. Um, I mean, at the margin, obviously, there's some changes, but I think the, um, the large banks are, are developing new technologies, disruptors are coming into the market. And regulation, especially in the 21st century, will always be behind technology and innovation. Um, you know, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, regulators just haven't quite figured out how to deal with those. And, and, and of course, the mobility of money moving across borders at a, at a mouse click. So I think that the regular regulators will always be a little bit behind. Technology will change a lot faster. You know, the minute you set up the monopoly board and say, these are the rules, Then technology changed, and the regulars say, "Oh my gosh, they're on another board, and I'm still on the old monopoly board." So then we got to see what the new one's going to look like. So um, I think that uh, uh, regulation will be important. And remember, it's not just about Dodd Frank in the U.S. The U.S. is a very important marketplace, still very important. But as you know, there's uh, as the U.S. continues to use its economic clout uh, and threaten other countries, whether that will continue in the next the next. Um, Uh, few presidencies, but as we continue to use economic clout around the world, other countries such as China or the European Union will increasingly think, well, maybe the dollar is not the best model. Maybe the economic system of the U.S. should not be so dominant 
Um, so I think in the 21st century, we're going to have global competition also in terms of regulation and um, certainly pr the provision of investment banking services. So we're just talking about regulation, and you mentioned Europe. So, so I w want to, since you worked in both U.S. And, and Europe, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the European banking sector. I mean, uh, th they weren't really... I guess, uh, immediately recapitalized right after the 2008 financial crisis. And there are a lot of sort of papers, academia, that talked about how eventually those undercapitalized banks decided to take on extra risks, which eventually ended up facilitating the 2011 debt crisis ar across Europe. Uh, so so in, in that sense, uh, I mean, how, how would you evaluate the European banking sector's performance in, in the past decade? Has it not been doing so well? Well, the, so the U.S. has been doing better, but remember, we have a much bigger home market. Um, we have a much higher propensity to take on credit. You know, consumer credit is a big source of uh, profits for the big banks. Um, places like Germany, everybody uses their debit card. There's almost no uh, consumer credit. Um, I think after the, the crisis, a lot of big banks, some of them merged, particularly the state-owned banks. Um, others got government money. Uh, like the Commerzbank in, in Germany, for example, or RBS in, in the UK. So they got government money, which mostly has been paid back. Um, but I think the, the problem of a, a European bank will always be that it grew historically around a home market, whether it's England, Germany, France. Those home markets uh, are not as large and as robust as the U.S. So there's already a home field advantage with the U.S., um, and those that have tried to expand across many borders have bumped into regulatory or cultural um, differences to make it hard to become a true uh, international player. Now, some, Banco Santander comes to mind, some have been able to make that adjustment and, and done pretty well. The Deutsche Bank, I think, lost its mojo when it decided to become a, you know, an Anglo-Saxon model, went to London and from Frankfurt, left its home market, which is the most robust economy in Europe and built a big organization in the U.S., and it sort of lost its, you know, its, its sense of character, who it is, and, and lost a lot of money in, in different areas. So um, I think trying to copy U.S. banks in that case for some European banks has been uh, the wrong strategy. Can we just talk a, a little bit more about Deutsche Bank? Because uh, everybody's talking about Deutsche Bank these days, and um, all my friends who are doing the banking recruiting, everybody say, ah, don't go to Deutsche Bank. It's, it's about to go bankrupt. I mean, how how bad is it actually doing? It, it, um, you know, so would you mind elaborating a little bit more on the thought of how it left the home market and everything? And that was a very interesting thought, yeah. Well, Deutsche Bank, when I got to Germany in the late 80s, was the leading player in every field of commercial and uh, investment banking. Any big, small or small deal, any IPO, any bond placement, the Deutsche Bank had, it finger, had its finger in it. And also, it had a huge number of industrial shareholdings. So basically, in the century before, the Deutsche Bank had underwritten stock offerings and placed a bunch of it to the public, but said, in the end, you know what? It's kind of nice to own some of the shares in Daimler. Let's keep it on our balance sheet. Other Manusmann or, or uh, Tussen or other industrial companies. So if you looked at the, you know, the Deutsche Bank sh the shareholdings, it owned 5 10 15% of a huge number of German industrial companies, in addition to dominating the services market. So this is the late 80s. Now, fast forward to, to the 90s and to 2000. They're getting into all kinds of um, uh, finance. 
um, trying to um, make more principal investments from their own balance sheet, building big organizations in, in the U.S., buying Bankers Trust um, and, and uh, Alex Brown and others. So making big and expensive acquisitions, typically at the top of the market. So spending a lot of their capital to do that. They're moving their you know, headquarters, particularly for investment banking, over to London. So it kind of lost its Germanness. Now, on the one hand, you say, well, it needed to become a more international institution. Absolutely. But you know, one of the things I learned at IBM is you want to be good at, at, at your your core market, whatever your core market is. In in by Deutsche, at Deutsche Bank, it was Germany. So if you're weak in your home market, it's really tough to use that as a base to become strong abroad. But they pivoted to a much more U.S. and London-centric organization and neglected their home market, which was then taken over by the Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgans and Morgan Stanleys, who, who took over that business. And over time, Deutsche Bank also divested its industrial shareholdings, so it didn't have the power over corporations anymore. So it lost in its home market. It went abroad and uh, paid a lot for acquisitions that, um, you know, historically is tough to integrate investment banks. It's a people business. And you know, the, the, uh, the talent, the assets go home every night, and if they don't come back the next morning, then a big part of the acquisition uh, value disappears. And a lot of that happened after, after their acquisition. So I think they, they did too many acquisitions. They pivoted away from their home market um, and kind of lost their, their core German culture, um, which, you know, was focused around, uh, you know, providing a quality service to corporate clients. Um, and instead, they got caught up in sort of the wheeling and dealing of uh, trading and, and principal investments. And when those went south, um, then uh, Deutsche Bank suffered. So, you know, they've changed uh, leadership, at least at the CEO level, a couple times in the last five years. Uh, they got a German at the head now. Um, I think it's too late to get, your home, get, get their home market back. I still think they're a fairly dysfunctional organization. Uh, there may be good job opportunities entry level, sometimes jumping into restructuring situations uh, uh, can also be a good learning experience because back to my point about a, a learning curve coming out of school. So I wouldn't say it's, it's not a good place to, to, to learn. I had business school classmates back in the 80s that went to work at uh, Chrysler right in the middle of their bankruptcy and bailout from the federal government. And they had an incredible experience because people were scared from working at, at, about working at Chrysler. And instead, they had a wonderful experience because they're really in the middle of everything hitting the fan at the same time. So you can learn a lot from that. So um, I wouldn't say there aren't good career opportunities, but I think certainly from a macro perspective or as a, a you know potential equity investor, Deutsche Bank is not out of the woods yet. Uh, how do you foresee the European banking sector, I guess, in general? Uh, maybe bouncing back is not the right word, but but gaining more influence uh, in the future because, as you were just saying, a lot of the, the banks aren't really international, major international players anymore. Uh, yeah, but what has replaced them, in, in certainly investment banking in, in Europe, have been more the mid-market players, uh, the Raymond James, Evercore, Molis, um, you know, Baird, Blair, uh, just to name a few of the, of the players. Um, so they've got really taking on the niche and, um, and certainly a big international player, like Rothschild, who's been there for um, several hundred years. So they've really taken over, I would say, the mid-market, but even the upper mid-market. So while the mega transactions are still being dominated by the, by the big international banks, uh, predominantly U.S., 
Um, a lot of that really relates to their ability to finance transactions and use their balance sheet to lever themselves into transactions, whereas the mid-market historically is focused on you know, taking companies public, um, doing spinoffs, uh, uh, mergers and acquisitions, uh, divestitures, et cetera, and also working for the private equity funds. So they've developed a good set of business just working for um, the you know, some of the most important investors in today's, in addition to do corporates, which are uh, private equity. So you see the middle market growing a little, a little bit more. I mean, you, you were mentioning about this word Mittelstand, right, in, in German. That's like the a lot of the activities happening. So, so would that be, be the refuge of the banking sector or, or where things will happen in the future? Well, if you look across the, the EU, of course, Europe is fragmenting and it's not just Brexit, it's a process that's, you know, started, you know, over 20 years ago when they couldn't agree on foreign policy as it related to the first Iraq war. As you may recall, Germany didn't allow the planes to fly over uh, Germany, so they had to leave England and make a big, you know, detour around to get to, to fly missions in, in Iraq. Uh, it moved on to monetary policy where not everybody joined the Euro European currency. Um, and uh, certainly banking policy, we saw what happened in the the debt crisis in 2011 when, you know, Southern European banks had issued a lot of, or, or countries had issued a lot of bonds uh, based on the credit worthiness of a Germany, so low interest bonds, and uh, just couldn't pay them back. You know, some of the projects that they issued them for, infrastructure projects, just didn't get built or a lot of it disappeared into um, into uh, unproductive, let's say, <laughs> uses. Um, so I think that Europe will continue to fragment. Brexit is just a step on that path. Um, I mean, if you imagine 27 countries have to agree unanimously on anything to get something done. I mean, pick your 26 best friends, put them in a room and get all of them to agree on anything. Um, now take very disparate countries that have spent 500 years basically fighting with each other uh, over boundaries, over religion, over you know ethnic composition. Um, and try to put them into uh, a room and expect that to work out over the long haul. So I think the uh, fragmentation of Europe is going to continue, and um, uh, Germany will certainly be uh, the last man standing from an economic stand standpoint. They are you know, it's extremely highly educated uh, uh, workforce, both in the white-collar and also the blue-collar sector. It has a very strong export-driven economy, um, uh, and, and the only risk that it really has is probably one that's more geopolitical, right? Because it's, uh, it's got um, a small country called Russia um, that, uh, is, uh, that is tying into its economy much more strongly through the natural, ga natural gas and, and energy exports. Um, so hopefully the economic uh, um, uh, tie-in with Germany will, will prevent any political uh, friction uh, with, with Russia going forward. Uh, you were just mentioning about how it's hard to get 27 countries to agree on something, uh, which I guess br brings into this interesting idea of regulatory competition. Uh, so we, we actually discussed this with a Sciences Po professor a couple of months ago, um, and, and he was saying how if you have you know London keep keeping to, to deregulate other uh, – they will attract a lot of sort of capital and, and banks and institutions there – uh, and in other places, other countries like Brussels uh, or, or Luxembourg or, you know, Paris or whatever, they also want to further deregulate in order to attract those capital and credit over there. And, and you eventually get into a spiral of further deregulating. And that's in a way what we see uh, in the past uh, 10, 20 years uh, with, with Europe and the U.S. So 
do you have a, a th any thought on that? Whether this sort of deregulation spiral will keep going on in, in Europe? Well, certainly tax policy is an important area of competition for, for countries, um, competition for jobs, right? Ireland, as you mentioned, with, uh, with lower tax rates, has been able to get headquarters of many American companies and manufacturing facilities, uh, entry to the EU, but in a lower tax country. Um, and even in the UK, right, they govern a little island called Jersey. And Jersey has a very different regulatory structure, which allows companies uh, to be much less transparent than if they were based in, in London, for example. Um, so all these exceptions, um, I think, will continue. Um, you know, money today, you know, moves quickly. Uh, wealthy individuals can move. So, you know, raising taxes on wealthy uh, individuals just means that they move, you know, to the next um, beautiful country or beach. Uh, corporations are equally mobile, so I think there is um, tax policy is another reason why there'll be um, uh, continued fragmentation in Europe and certainly competition among them for, you know, probably the most important uh, economic asset of the 21st century is going to be jobs. What are the jobs? Who's got the jobs? And how do you deal with unemployment? How do you deal with immigrants that are unemployed coming from other countries looking for jobs? And, and just to go a little bit further on the idea of fragmentation. Uh, does that mean we will see less influence globally um, for Europe, whether it's the banking sector or whether it's geopolitics? Uh, does it mean Europe in the next couple of decades will kind of be a uh, declining, waning force in, in the world? Well, I think Europe as a unit uh, will, or as a political geography, economic geography in total will, will remain important. Right, because it's a uh, number of consumers, because of the wealth uh, and amount of money there. So that will remain important. And corporations based in Europe are also big investors in the U.S. and, and certainly in Asia. So that will be important. But I don't think that the, the Europe will increasingly act as a unified organization as it relates to ac economic uh, and foreign policy, uh, or that will be the exception, um, and that the individual countries will increasingly compete for jobs, uh, for capital, um, and will also take uh, distinct approaches to um, topics such as immigration, uh, and um, uh, so I think that's that's going to be a big a big difference. Now, on the positive side, they may lead the way in other areas like data privacy. You know, with the new uh, laws there, I think the U.S. is way behind in dealing with data privacy, right? Because the the big technology uh, companies, whether it's Google or Apple or um, Amazon are getting massive amounts of data about us, about you and me, and they're not paying us anything for it, right? It's our data. We're not getting paid for it. Uh, if it's a public good, they're not paying the government for it, whether it's in terms of some form of a, a license fee or, uh, or uh, additional taxation, et cetera. So uh, I think there, the Europe is, has got some better ideas about how to deal with it, how to opt out. Uh, if you don't want companies to use your data. Um, and I think the U.S. has got to think about what that model should be. Um, as a good capitalist country, probably the model is one that, that you should just you know, tax them for it or, or license. Say you can use all this public data, but you license it, or you have to pay the people whose data are using some portion of, of, that, uh, of the money that you make um, on their data. Uh, so just to go a little bit deeper in, into Europe, and I mean, you worked in Munich and Bavaria for, for a while, and that's known for having a lot of m and activ activities, industrial sectors, healthcare, 
what about what about tech? Um, do you see Germany as an emerging power for for tech innovations? Do you see more tech deals coming out of Europe uh, in the foreseeable future? Well, I think Germany historically has been a very strong base of innovation. I mean, depending who you talk to, um, who invented the you know the, the combustion engine was a Daimler or Henry Ford. Um, both sides of the Atlantic will have a discussion on that. Um, Germans invented you know the X-ray. Germans invented aspirin. Germans invented you know MP3, the format for music, which you know became the basis of a lot of streaming um, down the road. So uh, it's a very engineering-driven and uh, I think, innovative country. Um, and I think that that will not change. If you look at southern part of Germany um, after World War II, remember it was there were different occupation zones, right? The, the west were the French, the north were the British, the east was uh, the Russians, and the south were the Americans. And I think it's more than coincidental that a lot of the high tech, higher tech um, in Germany, whether it's in Baden-Württemberg and Stuttgart area or Munich and B Bavaria, um, was all in the U.S. zone, um, and that these country these uh, companies uh, begin to flourish, whether it's uh, you know in the automotive sector, uh, like BMW and Audi and others, uh, whether it's in the healthcare sector, uh, or uh, even in the tech sector, software companies, IT services companies. A lot of the U.S. players in each of these fields are also located in southern Germany. Um, and remembering that more the Rhineland up in the in the northwest was more the industrial base uh, coming out of the war. Um, but the north was banking and, and, and trade, and East Germany, of course, was kept behind a wall for, for a good part of the last 50 years. But it just seems like, you know, not that many quote-unquote unicorns or, or billion-dollar valuation companies or startups are, are springing up in, in Germany or Europe in general. I mean, most of those are dominated by American and Chinese companies. Uh, so, so does that just mean that uh, Germany, for example, is more focused on specific um, innovations, but because the home market is a little bit smaller than the U.S. or, or China ones, uh, the, the startups, we're just unlikely to see startups that suddenly uh, become a billion-dollar valuated company. Is, is that something we're going to see? A really good question. So if you measure innovation success by unicorns, by big IPOs, then Germany is a disaster right. for, a company, uh, for a country its size. Right. I mean, there were fewer IPOs last year than there were in 1987 when I got to Germany. And that's scary for a, for a country of this size. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, 10, 12, 15 IPOs a year. There was the boom in the late 90s, obviously, the Internet-driven boom. So 97, 98, 99, it got into the hundreds. And then swoop-de-whoop, um, after the bubble burst, 2001, it went to zero. And then, you know, count on one hand and then you could use two hands. And now you can add a few toes in terms of the number of IPOs per year. Um, and there's a lot of, I think, government policy that's um, gotten in the way of that. The big banks, who should have been much more proactive underwriters when the, the German equivalent of the NASDAQ, the Neue Markt, uh, was flourishing in the late 90s and then it blew up, they basically closed that whole market down. You know, it's like in, in the 1930s, you say, well, the market, or 1928, you know, markets crashed. Uh, let's just shut the whole stock market down. Instead of saying, what do we need to fix? to make it a more successful, more vibrant stock market. And I think the Germans were not good at saying, we need to have this Neumacht, we need to have a, a German NASDAQ for these companies, so let's just um, you know, institute rules to make sure that the 
the, the boy groups that were going public at high valuations that later blew up or, or small, you know, groups of, of companies with ideas but no assets um, don't go public um, to restore investor confidence. And, um, and that wasn't done. So uh, for me, from a government policy, there's, more should be done in, in Germany. Germany historically grew up as a, um, a country that depended upon the banks for financing, so much more credit-driven financing. The U.S. markets, if you go back to the you know, building of the railroads and canals back in the late 19th century, were much more built around stock, you know, joint stock companies, so equity. Um, so, you know, first equity placements and then, you know, public trading in those shares. So, you know, when it got out of control in the, in the late 20s or 30s, regulations came to make it a, a fair environment, no insider trading, et cetera. When I got to Germany in the late 80s, insider trading was still allowed. I mean, you can think of it. I, I talked to CEOs who on a Monday say, I made so much money this weekend because tomorrow I'm announcing our results and I bought up a bunch of shares on Friday and it looked at me like, you know, in America – you know, I'd be going to jail, but here, this is, you know, where else do you want to be? I mean, this is, you know, Germany in, in the late 80s. Insider trading is not, not um, uh, illegal. So now, you know, some of these um, changes and to mirror the U.S. Um, has been, have been instituted. But I think um, Germany is way behind in that. So, you know, any high-tech company in Germany that aspires to go public, aspires to go to the NASDAQ. They want to get right to the U.S. And there are opportunities to do that with just having a U.S. headquarters or U.S. location to do that. So does it mean we need to cultivate more of a, a domestic market, especially capital markets, you know, you know, really making sure more IPOs are happening in, in Germany? Is that sort of the way out for, for, for um, facilitating innovation and... and well, you know, let's say as an American, I think it's great that the U.S. is the capital market, you know, of the world. That you know, even Chinese company are, are taking companies public in in the U.S. and that technology-driven companies want to go public in the U.S. I think that's fantastic, and the U.S. has momentum. It has all the focus of the institutional investors that are driving um, big IPOs. So to turn that around and and compete in a smaller market, whether it's in, you know, Euronext in, in, in Brussels or AIM in London or, you know, the Frankfurt Exchange, I just don't think they have the critical mass and they lost their, um, their opportunity to, to, um, to have really vibrant capital markets. There will be public stock offerings and maybe some privatizations, but um, I think the technology-driven companies all want to get to the U.S. And I think for the next decades, that will be the case. We know that economic power is moving more and more to Asia, um, that if, there's, if the U.S. dollar becomes less important going forward uh, in terms of uh, economic clout in an Asian currency uh, like the yuan becomes more important, maybe the stock markets there will, will become more important. Obviously, the political issues and transparency in places like China would be the biggest inhibitor and what's appealing to everybody around the world about the U.S. And even though we have huge amounts of debt, even though we have a dysfunctional political organization, in the capital markets world, it's all relative. It's still the safest place to put your money. It's a large, it's powerful economic market. It's still politically um, a stable um, uh, government where, if anything, dysfunctional is because people are not moving forward. They're blocking each other between the executive and the legislative branch. If you look at other countries, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, Italy or, or uh, uh, certainly many Asian countries, they're either run by autocrats or 
they are dysfunctional democracies where governments change in, in, in months, not in, in years. Um, and the U.S. has that huge advantage, um, aside from the fact that it's uh, part of a continent uh, which includes Canada and Mexico, also uh, politically stable with incredible uh, resources. So I think that speaks well for, for the future, independent of uh, any little political ripples that we have uh, here and there. Uh, before we end the interview, just a little bit more about geopolitics. I mean, I remember from our conversation last summer, uh, you were saying how 10 years ago a lot of companies – um, focused on China, but we realized that it's tough to do things in China and get money out of it after you make money there. So, so they're now more focusing on the European market, uh, and, and we're seeing more M and A and private equity deals. Uh, and, and we were talking about the middle market as well today. Uh, but last summer we weren't seeing the intense trade war yet. We we weren't witnessing the the strong ideological divide, I guess, between uh, the West and China. So, how do you see? that factor playing out. And also you were talking about the Germany and Russia um, and then Putin. So how do you foresee the, the global geopolitical trend influencing? That's such a big question for, for you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Tiger. If I give the right answer, uh, I hope uh, we can solve the problems in one, in one interview. But um, let's start with China. So we know that the playing field was never level with China. You could go in and do joint ventures. You could never own the majority of a company. Um, getting your um, you know, hard currency back out again, very difficult. Um, and the Chinese were very focused on acquiring strategic technologies, whether it's an energy or uh, IT or automotive um, or healthcare uh, technologies. Um, it was a fairly one-sided, but again, companies wanted access to that market, and um, and certainly those like Germany that exported a lot. Germany didn't. German companies, I think, with maybe one exception, made almost no um, real takeovers or investments in um, China outside of joint ventures. And the automotive industry is certainly a very very good example of that, where they've been successful and uh, in the past, but. You know, gaining access to the market and creating profitable companies that allow capital flows uh, easily in both directions, very difficult. Uh, and it's a very managed uh, economy, and you never know when the Chinese government's going to change the rules. Um, so that makes it, I think, more risky. It doesn't make it, make it less attractive. It makes it more risky. Obviously, the rewards can be much higher if you have a chance to become a, a big player in the, in the Chinese market. Um, the trade wars... You know, it all sounds very militaristic. Um, again, it's an attempt to maybe level the playing field access to, uh, in both directions, government-subsidized products uh, or, you know, government-supported enterprises shipping products abroad at, at low cost um, and not accepting um, foreign products uh, as easily. So I think you know, talking about that, you know, obviously the— there should be other other ways rather than make it a bilateral fight between the U.S. and and, and China. But I think the broader you know non-Chinese uh, economic powers have got to try to level that playing field as much as they can. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of war of, of words. No one has an interest, neither the Chinese nor the U.S., in a true stalemate in terms of trade. Um, the Chinese sit on trillions of dollars of assets that they want to be able to spend abroad. Um, they want to continue to export and keep their factories humming and improve the standard of life for their people. Um, America wants access to 
um, uh, you know, less expensive consumer goods. Um, so I think they'll, they'll find a way out of it. Um, I think a lot of it's just the, the uh, you know, political uh, headlines uh, between the two, uh, between the two countries. And Russia, you know, Russia has pivoted away from technology more towards a resource-driven country. Um, so they're using their tremendous resources, whether it's oil uh, or um, uh, industrial minerals um, from, from Siberia in a very, I think, effective way. And what they'll probably do over time is use that money to acquire technology. Obviously, they want places like Germany dependent on their energy. But in return, they want a, access to German engineering technology. Um, and uh, so I think the mutual interdependence, whether it's Russia and the rest of the world and China and the rest of the world from an economic standpoint, is really important because, remember, even in places like Russia and China, their political system still depends upon the people being happy and not you know, revolting and, and changing governments, which in both countries they've been known to do. So um, jobs and uh, quality of life uh, are important in those countries, which gives me confidence that the um, economic system will continue to function um, uh, in spite of uh, temporary trade wars. Awesome. That's a, that's a very positive note to, to end on. So, so the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline. So I just want to ask you at the very end, very quickly, uh, what's the punchline here for the future of investment banking, finance, policy, geopolitics? anything. What's the punchline that our listeners should take away today? Be flexible. Be flexible. You know, the world is changing. So be flexible and think outside the box. Awesome. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation about uh, banking, about uh, geopolitics and, and European U.S. banking sector. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. Malmert. Thank you. Awesome. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchlines. Please follow us on, on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Twitter at Policy Punchline. Uh, rate and review us um, and visit us on policypunchline.com. Thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.